0: Fuel. We check it before every flight. Fuel management. Something that needs to happen throughout a flight. Fuel starvation. A situation that can have dire consequences. We'll discuss a couple of fuel starvation stories on this episode of I Laughed. I learned about flying from that. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Episode 4 of Flying Magazine's I Laughed podcast, brought to you by the Avemco Aviation Insurance Company. I'm your host, Rob Ryder, and in a moment, I'll have a conversation with my guest, Flying Magazine's Unusual Attitudes columnist, Martha Lunken. But before we do, here's a message from Avemco. For 60 years, Avemco has been the only aircraft insurance company that lets you speak directly with a decision maker empowered to approve coverage based on your unique situation. Call 800-338-8705 for a free quote and you'll save an instant 5% for being an I L A F T Listener. Save even more for recurrent training, a new rating, or participating in a Fast Teams Wings course. Call 800-338-8705 or visit avemco.com slash flying. Now, I learned about flying from that. Martha Lunken, good morning and welcome to I Laughed.
1: Good morning, Rod, it's good to be here.
0: I'm glad you are. Before we get into this whole story of, and, and your stories, talking about fuel, there is the most obvious question that probably a lot of listeners and readers of your column, Unusual Attitudes, probably have not understood, and that is the connection of your name, Lunken, to the most famous airport in all of Cincinnati, uh, long before CVG was around in the late 1940s. But how are you connected with the name of Lunken for Lunken Airport?
1: Well, when I'm being silly, I say they named me after the airport. Truth <laughs> is, I, I grew up on the west side of Cincinnati, and there there really were no airports over there. A grass strip or two, but but no airports. And for some reason, from early, early childhood, I'm talking about five or six years old. I remember the day Chuck Yeager broke the sound barrier. I was five, and I was mesmerized. I was <sighs> so you know nobody in my family flew. I didn't know anybody who flew, but I was I was determined you know someday to fly. So. We used to come out to Coney Island, which is near Lunkin Airport, you know, and I knew it was there. And the the real story is when I was in college, I called a priest friend who owned half of an air coupe with another priest. And I said, Father Blomy, I've saved $200. I'm in college, but I'm working nights at Maybelline and Carew, and I think I have enough to learn to fly. And he said, well, why don't you use the air coop? We're not flying it, and it's sitting out there. Use it and put fuel in it and pay the instructor. So um, I did. and my, In fact, my sister and I both learned to fly in the air coupe. And uh, I went on to spending about six months with TWA as a hostess. I was, I was 18 turning 19. Wow. Yeah. And came back home. To finish college, and I didn't like, I didn't like the the life. Um, That was immature. But eventually, I got a commercial license and a flight instructor rating, and started a flight school. Well, in this process, I met a man who was, I say, the poor man's Howard Hughes. Ebbie Luncan was a a, a fabulous character. At the time, he had a P fifty one, and He started a little airline that went to northern Michigan in the summer and then Cleveland and Detroit in the rest of the year. And he knew I'd had training with TWA. Somebody introduced me to him in the Sky Galley restaurant. And and he said, would you work for me this summer as a hostess, stewardess, on on my my Lockheed Electras. Wow. Now, Electras, you know, the passengers all thought they were climbing on a turboprop. These were Amelia Earhart Electras, Lockheed 10s, (laughs) which were quite different. But anyway, within about, oh gosh, a month, we were engaged. Wow. Yeah, and Ebby was 30 years older than I was. Um, But he was Howard Hughes. He was the moon and the stars. So... I kept the flying school, and and I kept um, working for him, keeping the airline going. And about eight years went by until we were married. And we both sowed some wild oats in that time. But I had the flying school, and we were married for seven years, and then we were divorced. You know, by that time, the age difference became more problematic, and lives change it was time it was time so we remained good friends but there i was back out on the street and i didn't want to uh go back to the flying school because that's kind of you know hand to mouth existence and i mean i put in 6000 hours instructing wow and i wonder why i'm i'm getting deaf and the reason is we didn't wear headsets we screamed at each other so uh, the FAA was looking for women, of course, you know, to hire as inspectors. Oh, and while Ebby and I were married, kind of as a wedding present, he bought a lucky Lodestar
0: my goodness!
1: So I got a type rating and my multi ATP in the Loadstar, and it was quite an interesting airplane because it was a single pilot Lodestar. and I used to fly it alone, which I look back on now as the wow. You know, this are the same engines as a DC three.
0: I was going to say it's 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 only slightly smaller than a than a Goony Bird.
1: Yeah, well, appreciably smaller, but but because of the same power, it's uh, it's it. It's a more difficult airplane to fly. Um, but the FAA saw that I had an ATP and a type rating in this star, and they hired me as an air carrier inspector. Of course, that's these guys deal with, with airlines and jets. I had no idea what, what that kind of work involved. So after about, oh, six months in the air carrier office, I moved back into general aviation, which is where I belong, and worked in Chicago for... Oh, four and a half years, and then was transferred to Indianapolis for three years. And then the safety program opened up in Cincinnati, the the, the job as a safety program manager, and I came back here. So, you know, the FAA and I didn't really see eye to eye on a whole lot. They think of me, and they're right, it's kind of a loose cannon. But I had two really wonderful opportunities. One was because of the type rating and the Lodestar. They wanted me to do DC-3 freighter work, flight checks. So I got a type rating in the DC-3 uh, at uh, Opelika Airport back in the 80s and spent the next 20 years. I think I probably gave close to 200 type ratings in the DC-3.
0: And And throughout that time, though, working with the FAA, it took you into positions and situations where our issue of fuel became oh, yes. something that has has bothered you for years because of people having fuel difficulties. You had one in particular that was that was one that surprised you and everybody because of the way the fuel cap worked. Right? Tell us about that story. Well,
1: and actually, the FAA had to consult with Cessna to make sure that I wasn't making this up. I had just put new Monarch fuel caps on my Cessna 180, and they're they're ratcheting fuel caps. They're, they screw on. And I did that because there was a fuel venting problem in early 180s, which Richard Collins will tell you would have told you happened. It happened to his father. <clears throat> um, and I took off from Nashua, New Hampshire to come back home. I'd been doing DC-3 checks up in Nashua. And uh I was up on the wing making sure I had full tanks because it was a long leg to lacrosse I think Pennsylvania and the line boy was standing there and I climbed in the airplane blasted off on, early on a Sunday morning on an IFR flight plan and I climbed to I think it was I was at 6000 and I remember as I leveled off there was a faint whiff of fuel in the oh. cockpit and I didn't think anything of it. The airplane was rather new to me still at the time. It said 1956, Cessna 180, but to me it was. So uh, I always, you know, take off on, on both and then switch to the right, switch to the left every half hour, make sure it's flowing out of both sides. And about an hour, and not even an hour and a half into the flight, and I'm on top and the engine quit. So, of course, I look immediately at the, at the fuel gauges, which are in the wing roots, and they're, they're floats, you know. And they're saying better than three-quarters full, both of them. Well, you know, you rich in the mixture, you pull on the carburetor, you switch tanks back to both, and it it caught. Engine ran, but I told, I think it was Wilkesbury approach, I said, I have some kind of a fuel problem, and I think I better you know, get on the ground. The guy said, OK, we're going to ve- give you vectors for, I don't know what runway it was at Wilkesbury," And he vectored me down to the southwest so I could get on this ILS, and now I'm in the clouds, in the soup. And it quit again. Uh, and you're pretty helpless at that point. There's nothing left to do. Um, so I set up a glide.
0: Well, let me ask you this before you set up the glide. What were the weather reports? For Wilkesbury, were 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 they down at minimums, or was it a thousand, or
1: no? It was about a thousand, a thousand and six or seven. It wasn't terrible weather, but
0: but that still makes it a fairly short decision period when you come out of the clouds oh as a yeah. brick. Oh
1: yeah, I came out probably. 800 feet above the ground and the ground was the Poconos so it was trees and hills. And I remember thinking well I guess this is it and all I can do is try to stall it into the tops of these trees. Mm -hmm. Um, And then right over a stand of trees I see a white, something white and it was a road and it turns out it was a spur of the Pennsylvania Turnpike. So I put myself on base and turn final it was a sunday morning and i landed over some cars you know i thought thought, well i'm in the glide i'm faster probably than they're going uh and landed without incident rolled into the median shut it down of course people are stopping and wanting to help and i climbed up on the left wing and the fuel cap is hanging by the chain oh no but then i thought well why why didn't it pull out of the right tank so i climbed up on the right strut and and opened that cap and the bottom of the fuel tank had sucked up into the neck of the of the opening
0: which Caused the floats to well, misread yes, the, the amount of fuel. Yes, the floats are telling
1: me I've got all kinds of fuel, and the reason it did that is there's a vent line from one left tank to the right tank, right over your head in the in the cockpit, and when the fuel was exhausted out of the right ta- out of the left tank, it started pulling it out of the right tank across.
0: So it cross-fed on its it cross-fed own.
1: Cross-fed on its own and took everything out of the out of the uh, tanks.
0: So, once again, the fuel gauges lied. As they often do, but in this case, so so it was hanging on the on the other wing. It was hanging out by the chain. What had happened?
1: I I will go to my grave not knowing, but I can only surmise that when I put the cap on, I cross-threaded it and I didn't have it on there tightly, tightly. And that the the pressure of the air pulled it off. Wow. Um, yeah, I mean they're 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 kind of hard to ratchet on. Uh, I I still have them on the airplane. They're wonderful if you if you know if you <laughs> if you're careful. Um, but yeah, I thought I was being careful. And, and probably the sweetest part of that story is once I convinced the Pennsylvania State Patrol that that's what had happened. The fire truck, <clears throat> they said, we can't let a fuel truck on the turnpike. And the fire truck guy said, hey, we'll bring her some fuel. So they brought a couple five-gallon cans of gas. We poured it in the tanks. The cops stopped the traffic. <laughs> no. And I blasted off of the turnpike. And you know the landing on the turnpike was great. The landing at Wilkesbury. Five minutes later was a disaster. I mean,
0: okay, was... now wait a minute. Okay, because you've told me about when you're landing your airplane. You're about four out of five are really good, yeah, but well, then the fifth one is one springy. Was this one... one of those?
1: I was, I was. You know, the impact of the whole thing had kind of hit me by that by that time. But um,
0: how many times did you land at Wilkes I don't remember,
1: but it probably wasn't pretty. <laughs> but it didn't shed any parts, so you know, I was fueled it up and came on home. But I did have to tell. You know, make a report to the FAA, and they investigated it. The Harrisburg office investigated it, and at some point in the in the phone interview, the inspector said, "Oh, you made a precautionary landing," and I said, "Uh, yes, <laughs> very <laughs> precautionary." So I even called the Turnpike people and made them send. I said I didn't pay the toll.
0: No, and come only, on.
1: And, and they sent me a, a, I have it framed. A
0: dollar <laughs> ten or something like that. Oh, my gosh. But,
1: you know, it. I, I don't know that there's a lesson there other than slow down, make sure on your pre-flight, you know, that you're doing it.
0: There are other stories, though, Mar- Martha, that one that's close to home that is particularly sad, but it deals with that same same scenario of fuel starvation, doesn't it?
1: Yeah. And this is is particularly sad. Um, it was a, a young doctor who was a member of the Indiana Air Guard and he took off from the former Blue Ash Airport, which is just uh, eight miles north of Lunken, so in the Cincinnati area, for um, uh, Terre Haute, Indiana where the guard was having some event. And he flew a Cessna 152 that was fully fueled it had full tanks um and that
0: it, amounts to about 26 gallons total i right. think right
1: uh, 26 to 24 and a half usable i think okay and he got uh, he got to Terre Haute. the flight was was approximately an hour um he performed physicals, I think, medicals on these uh, airmen all afternoon, and then that evening there was a party. He stayed for the party. Uh, he gave a ride that lasted at least thirty minutes, uh, and by the time he left there, it was it was nine thirty, approximately nine thirty at night, and so of course it was dark. Now, he did not fuel up there, and, you know, you'd think, well, it's an hour back uh, to Cincinnati. But for some reason, that flight later was was found to be over two hours. So, did he get lost? Um, Who knows? But for some reason, it was two hours.
0: But had it been... Normal flying for an hour out, an hour back, and a half hour of of pleasure flying with somebody—that's two and a half hours at seven or eight. That he would have had gas.
1: He would have had gas. He would have had
0: he would have barely been close. legal.
1: Yeah, gas. It wasn't. It would not have been a wise move. And he had only ninety-nine hours total time.
0: So he was brand spanking new. Yeah,
1: fifty or fifty or sixty in in the airplane uh so he was he was a very yeah new pilot um and you know usually the new guys think of yourself when when you started out uh
0: overly cautious yeah, really
1: really cautious but the and then well the next the next thing that that anybody knows after he departed terre haute was he, cincinnati approach control gets a mayday call from the airplane, and he said, I am out of fuel. I am out of fuel. So evidently the engine had quit. He was two miles from the the Blue Ash Airport. The visibility was down to two and a half miles. So it's it's black of night, um, foggy, and he sees a highway underneath him. And of course the only thing to do is land on that highway. Now this is an interesting uh, uh, detail. He landed to the east on this highway. And that meant he landed into uh, uh, oncoming traffic. traffic. Because it's a split highway with a median in the center, it's unlit. So I'm sure, you know, there have been all kinds of speculations. Well, why did he do that? I'm sure he did not know that he was landing into oncoming traffic. <clears throat> and he touched down, you know, pretty uneventfully and then collided with a, a van uh, or an SUV carrying two nurses from a local hospital who were on their way home. And that airplane ended up in the back of that van and everybody was killed so oh. it was a it was a it was a tragedy but you you wonder what you know what was going through his mind on the way back because he had to be uh, cognizant that the time was was far more than than he had in fuel
0: and the visibility that night at Blue Ash, as you told me as we talked a little bit before, was was barely VFR. Well, well it, was, it was a special VFR. Yeah, it would it have been special VFR. It.
1: And, the you know, again, the Two question and a half miles. is, was it that way out uh, over the plains of Indiana? Who knows? But I, the I,
0: plains I, of Indiana are very dark.
1: A very, very dark, yeah. And, I, you know, I've always suspicion that he knew he had a problem, but he was so reluctant to look for an airport to land and, and refuel. Uh, there was Indianapolis, which would of course been open all night. Um, the other ones are small country airports, and I don't know whether they had self-serve fuel. Uh,
0: or. Or if he could see the beacon, there are some smaller airports that you don't see the beacon well and you don't even know to click seven, where to, to look yeah, if you clicked yeah, seven times.
1: Yeah. This is true. He should have landed. I don't care whether there was fuel or not. He should have landed. There's 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 telephones. Uh, there are uh
0: there, I, there are had, hotels.
1: Yes. I, I had a friend call me one time. <laughs> a friend, He had landed at an airport in Kentucky, and he said, I don't know what airport I'm at, and I'm nearly out of fuel. And we talked for a while, and I finally determined he was at, at, at Berea, Kentucky, and I called the Kentucky State Police to come rescue him.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so this gentleman, physician, guy, smart guy, an hour, an hour and a half, expecting an hour back, but he would have been barely legal in the if everything was perfect. Getting back to the former Blue Ash Airport, and
1: yes, and that be, so, so sure begs the question: Why didn't he fuel up at Terre Haute?
0: There's the question.
1: There's one thing that Martha King said that will always remain with me, and and that was if you're if you're making a trip, where the range is such that, you know, fuel's going to be iffy. You should be able to make it, but, and, and most of us would say, well, let's go, and then as we get closer, if we see we're, we're not making the time we need, we'll land somewhere. And, and she said, no, don't do that. She said, plan a stop. Plan a stop halfway. Just, just put that to rest. Plan a stop halfway, and then fuel up and, and go on. And I think, that's, I think that's very good advice.
0: A sobering story, Martha. We'll be back to talk more about what you learned about flying from that and other people's challenges right after this break. The folks at Avemco Insurance have been passionate about pilot safety for 60 years. That's why they sponsor the FAA's Fast Teams Wings program and support I Learned About Flying From That. Avemco even rewards safe pilots with reduced premiums of up to 10%. You can instantly save 5% just for listening to iLeft. Call 800-338-8705 today or visit avemco.com flying and tell them you're a listener. Now, back to I learned about flying from that. We're back with Martha Lunken. Talking about fuel starvation and problems and, and accidents that have been caused by, I guess you'd say, fuel mismanagement. What do, you, what, what, do you, what do you want to tell people about trying to manage your fuel better?
1: Well, it's interesting you bring up that subject of mismanagement. Uh, there was a, a rather well-known surgeon, local surgeon, here who crashed down in the hills of Kentucky uh, in a bonanza. And uh, he and his son-in-law were killed. And, of course, everybody thought, you know, it's a a fuel problem. uh, Or there was even talk about there being low-altitude military routes, and he got caught in wake turbulence, and the family was going to sue the military. Well, what it turned out to be was he had plenty of fuel in the airplane. He didn't know how to get to it. He didn't know how the fuel selectors worked. And in some of the older Bonanzas, it's a nightmare. I mean, you re- I, I have flown some where you actually, the owner made up a, uh, a, a diagram to show you, because there's two selectors you have to change in order to get to ta- when, when the airplane has tip tanks. So having the fuel is, is one thing, knowing how to get to it. And, and what the return is what tank to go back to that's that's very important <clears throat> a story maybe not directly related but uh I had a, a a lady I used to give flight checks to in a Twin Beach who was killed and I was, wanted to go to the funeral and I ran down to the hangar and pulled the 180 out and I'm headed out to Highland County
0: which is 25 minute yeah flight or flight. something like that
1: and and
0: that's east of Cincinnati for those right, who are listening who right. don't know the I think
1: they're I think they're about fifty miles east of Cincinnati yeah. so I jumped in the airplane and it would not start. Now nobody flies that airplane except me. and there's you know there's a little lesson there if you if you own your own airplane and you're the only one who flies it, you tend to get a little cavalier about the pre-flight and maybe checklists so, I tried and tried and tried and finally I thought, if I start right now, jump in the car, <clears throat> I can still make it. And I did. But mean, meanwhile, I stopped at the mechanic's shop and I said, would you guys look at the 180? They're, I don't know what's the matter with it. Drove out there, went to the funeral, came back late in the day, stopped at the shop, and they said, we fixed it.
0: <laughs> and how did they fix it, he And asked. I said,
1: you fixed what? <laughs> and he said, We turned the fuel selector on. Oh, I had I had checked out a buddy, an airline captain, in the airplane and told him to fly it when he wanted to. He was the only person I ever let fly the one eighty. And it was his practice to always turn the fuel off after he returned. So, you know, there you go. Now I could have I could have had enough in the lines to make it out. And take off and you know
0: And then plowed into the exactly, trees yeah. somewhere in Claremont County. So
1: believe me, I I check, you know, I use the point method, check everything in the cockpit before before I go.
0: Well, in the last couple of seconds that we have, you, you mentioned in our first part of the interview what Martha King had said, and that I think bears repeating because the judgment that a pilot has to make for his own life and for the lives of his passengers has to be tempered by uh, working personal margins, right?
1: Right, right. Uh, what she said, and it might have been both John and Martha, I, I can't remember, but the advice was if, you, if you're making a, a flight where you're close to the range, max range of the airplane. You know, you you've planned it out. Okay, I still have a half hour left, or I have an hour left. Uh, and as I get closer to the destination, if I if I feel like I'm getting low, I'll, I'll make a stop somewhere. And she said, "Don't do that." She said, "When you're planning a flight like that, pick a spot halfway and land and fuel the airplane up. Just take take that." Maybe if, maybe I can make it. Because the problem is, if you don't do that, as you get, and I've done this. Uh, I came back from Oklahoma City nonstop in a, in a bonanza. Um, and I thought, I'm pretty sure I can stretch this. I'm pretty sure I can. That's not the place to be.
0: So if that gets into your head, what we all can take home from that is, I'm pretty sure I can make it is not.
1: That's right. That, that is not some. That's not an option.
0: You, because then your brain starts concentrating on that instead of the rest of the aspects of the flight. I mean. right. Yeah. right. Yeah. Martha Lunken, thank you so much for being with us on I Laughed. Thank
1: you, Rob. It was a pleasure.
0: As we close out this episode of I Laughed, I'd invite you to subscribe. Go to www.flyingmag.com and select. I Laughed Podcast from the drop-down menu. Or you can follow Flying Magazine on Facebook or Instagram, where we'll post new episodes so everyone can hear the first-hand accounts of the flying lessons that sometimes only experience can teach. For Avemco Aviation Insurance and Flying Magazine, fueling the passion for flight since 1927. I'm Rob Ryder. Catch you next time on I Learned About Flying From That.